he basically told me in a two-minute consult that I had been diagnosed with polycystic ovary syndrome and that because of that, I would not be able to have children. And so at 24, um, I, like even if you weren't thinking about it, I think like just having that option taken away or like seemingly taken away, just all of a sudden like shocked the system a little bit. Hi guys, and welcome back to the Rage Active Podcast. We're bringing you insightful conversations to inspire your wellness for your body and mind. Make sure you hit subscribe so that you get the latest episodes as soon as they are released. I'm your host, Rachel J, and I'm so excited to welcome my guest to the show today. She is the CEO and founder of Kin Fertility. Welcome to the show, Nicole Liu. Thanks so much, Rachel, for having me. I'm so excited to have you on because we're going to be chatting about all things women's health, reproductive health, fertility, and all the things that we should know as women. And as women, I feel like there's so many parts to health and reproductive health that I suppose we overlook, you know, sometimes. And so I'm really keen to get stuck into these elements with you. And, you know, obviously as women, this is stuff that we uniquely deal with. But I guess I wanted to start with this. You really had a pretty personal experience yourself around a specific women's issue. And I'm really interested to know how this began for you because it really began with a misdiagnosis, really, didn't it? Yeah, that's exactly right. I think for me, um, I I guess like I was 24 when I like I was 24 and I wasn't thinking about my fertility at all. Like I was Mm. just starting my career. Um, Children were not on my mind for like at least a decade. But I had gone to the doctors and this was like right after I had finished, um, like finished up at my corporate career. I kind of wanted to get all the health checks. And as part of that, I got a fertility check. And this kind of like was just a hormone test that tests for like a few hormones in your fertility. And when I came back to the doctors, he basically told me in a two minute consult that I had been diagnosed with polycystic ovary syndrome. And that because of that, I would not be able to have children. And so at 24, um, I, like even if you weren't thinking about it, I think like just having that option taken away or like seemingly taken away, just all of a sudden like shocked the system a little bit. Um, yeah, absolutely. Didn't know who to talk to. I had never heard any friends go through anything similar. Didn't really know where to turn. Um, and so for two weeks at least, I think I was just like turning to Dr. Google like any good millennial. <laughs> um, and the information I found about like polycystic ovary syndrome or like infertility was just like so conflicting. Um, like every website I went on to felt like it was telling me different symptoms. It was telling me different like end results. Um, so I ended up going to a fertility specialist. I showed him my fertility results. I told him about my symptoms and he just looked at me and he was like, um, and I had gone in for an ultrasound. So I was like ready to do an ultrasound. And he was like, look, I don't think you have polycystic ovary syndrome. Nothing in your tests like says that you do. Nothing in your symptoms says that you do. And also, even if you did, it doesn't mean you can't have children. Um, like that, that's just like not right. It means it's potentially difficult, but like people do have PCOS and do have children. Um, and so I just walked away being like, okay, that was like two, like two versions of like misinformation. Mm. Um, and I just thought it was so like bizarre. So I was talking to a few friends about it. And all of a sudden they had all these versions of like me too stories. Like, oh yeah, like my friend, I heard like she had the same thing. Um, they thought she had PCOS, but actually she had something different. 
um, or like my friend didn't get diagnosed for endometriosis for like however many years. Um, and all these like versions of similar misinformation and misdiagnosis stories started coming up, which just started to feel really, really weird. Um, yeah. This journey really started for me just like really realizing that there were like flaws in the health system or just like at least an underrepresentation or an under um, served market when it comes to like women's reproductive health. Yeah. And when you were talking to your friends about it, what were they experiencing as well? I mean, obviously really conflicting when you get what told one thing and then you go to another specialist and they tell you something different. Was it sort of a similar situation where they were getting all kinds of different information? How did they, how did that make them feel about that? Yeah, for sure. I think like to take an example, like one of my friends, she had um, seen like an endocrinologist, a doctor, a specialist, and they had basically been telling her that like maybe this woman was imbalanced or um, maybe they had PCOS or like that they didn't have PCOS like every time she went to a different specialist. Um, and so obviously I think when you're feeling the symptoms of your body, you know that something doesn't feel right. Um, you're looking for answers. Um, and I think when you keep getting told different things or like people maybe like dismiss certain symptoms or like don't look at certain things or don't look at you in a holistic way, um, or can't back up what they're saying with like the right information. It's really hard to feel it's like stable, like a sense of certainty. And therefore yeah. you have like the information to make any decisions about your body. You kind of just like letting it happen to you. Um, and so unless you start like feeling like you've got the knowledge or the answers, you kind of just sitting there with this thing that you know about your body, but you can't do much about. Yeah. So it makes you feel kind of powerless to do anything about it. You're getting told a bunch of different things and it's all conflicting. And so what do we do from here even? So take me through the journey because obviously this is a part of the reason why you started Kinfertility. And it began obviously quite organically, but take me through that whole journey from how you tie in your personal experience to then leading into kin fertility. Yeah, I think like for me, the um, I just left my corporate job and I think I was just like, I just had a lot of time as well. But I think after this experience, I just had so many questions. Um, like I had never been thinking about my fertility, but all of a sudden I was like, okay, like what, what do I need to know about my fertility? Like how do I know that I'll be able to have kids if and when I want them? Um, do I have PCOS? Do I have something else that I should be considering? Because I grew up with like really severe um, period pain. Um, mm. And so like, is there something else? Is there anything else I don't know about my reproductive health? Like what sort of screen should I be doing? Um, what sort of test should I be doing? Like any anything like that. Um, so I started becoming a little bit obsessive with that. Um, <laughs> that kind of led me down the path of like, okay, well, I hate all the information on the internet. I don't, I don't trust it. Um, and so how can I find the most like trusting information that I can actually understand? Because like I'm a very simple-minded woman. And so for me, it was finding a um, specialist that I could trust who like saw my point of view and like could really resonate with what I was trying to do. And from there, um, finding like a writer that could like digest that information and like write it really in a way that I could understand or in a way that I would like other people to understand it. Um, and so I put those two together and just started writing blog posts that would allow information to be, di like accurate specialist information to be digested well. Um, and just like put it out there and see, so like to see what happens. Um, and that got a lot of traction pretty quickly. And like people like wanted the information. You could see people were engaging for with it and like staying on the site for really long. Um, so I think that just like started it 
and like showed me that there was like appetite for at least better information and better education around this space. Mm. Oh my goodness. I didn't realize it started as blog posts. And I feel like what a great way to sort of you know, educate yourself, but also share that information with other people as well. I I really love that. Now we've sort of touched on there that you know there's there can be a lot of conflicting information and and also just misunderstanding of what actually you you asked a lot of questions there, and I think a lot of women listening ask those questions as well. What what do I need to know, and how what test do I need to get, and how do I know if I'm actually fertile for later down the track, even if it's not something that you're thinking about it now? I mean, what are the conversations that we should be having, even as women, around fertility and reproduction that we aren't having? Because it, I feel like it's so good that you were talking to your girlfriends about it. It's not. I suppose it's not something that you think about until you get to that stage even or unless something happens to you. So what are the kind of kind of conversations do you think we we should be just having anyways as as women around our reproductive health? Yeah, for sure. And I I think like it's really interesting because like this I'm, I'm turning 28 this year. So a lot of this is actually quite top of mind. Um, <laughs> like a few debates I've been having with myself and like my partner and even my friends now. Um, over the last few years has been um, sort of like three different questions. Um, the first one is actually like, do I want children um, or like have I default been primed to want children? Um, the second one is like, okay, if I do want children or I maybe want children, uh, when in my life would I want to have children? Like how do I think about that? And then given all these like, um, I guess like my clients for it, how do I actually go about planning for it and making sure that if I do want children and like for the timeline that I want them, um, how can I put myself in the best position? I think like the it's I just find it so interesting because like we make plans about careers, we make plans about like you know buying a house one day or something like that, but we don't think about one of the most important parts of our life maybe is um, our like reproductive health plan or like a family plan. Um, and so yeah, I think how this has played out for me and the um, after all these discussions is like I think I maybe want children in the future. Um, I think if I do, I'll probably want them in my mid-30s. And therefore, I think um, the decision I've come to is like I'm considering freezing my eggs this year um, or mm. early next. Um, yeah. But I think, yeah, I don't know. I think like the discussion um, to like break that down a little bit, the discussion around like do I want children or not um, is the first one. And I think a lot of um, our families and societies almost like prime us to want children because that's exactly what they did. Um, yeah. And so that's probably the first question. And you fall into like one of three buckets. One, you definitely know you want children. Two, you maybe want children, but you don't know. And then three, you definitely don't. Um, but the hard thing is a lot of people actually fall into that middle bucket, um, whether it's like because you haven't met the right person or like it's actually just generally hard to predict your future. Um, yeah. But the thing you realise or I, I started to realise is that if you're in that maybe bucket, you actually should be probably taking the same actions as those in the I definitely know I want to have children bucket. Um, but what happens, what tends to happen is that we take the actions of those who are definitely planning not to have children, um, which is not a lot of like proactive family planning, um, which is why you should start asking yourself the question if you are thinking about like maybe having children, um, whether or when you want to have children, because you're faced with the same reality. Um, and the hard reality is that all women are born with the same amount of eggs um that they'll ever have and they both decline in quality and quantity and that's hard to reverse um and so yeah I, I think like the information can be really confronting but it's not meant to like scare anyone it's really like you have to use that information to help you like 
make decisions more proactively and help you plan. Um, and so I guess like looking at that and knowing that and like knowing the stats around your fertility and your age, um, I think that's where the third question comes in, which is like, how do you actually plan for it and like discuss that? Um, because if you know you're having children earlier, then maybe the things you start thinking about are more like what contraception should be, uh, should I be on um, so that it doesn't um, impact my fertility? Like there's um, one particular contraception called uh, the like the injection that like will have impacts on your fertility for like two or so years sometimes. Um, Like knowing that in particular will like help with your family planning. Um, Mm. Lifestyle factors, things like that start coming in. But if you know you're like maybe wanting to push out your fertility timeline, then egg freezing could be a really good option to start exploring and like considering. Um, And just like thinking about that decision a little bit more proactively than like later. Yeah. I mean, I feel like these questions, you you are so right in that we do plan so many other areas of our life. And often this is the thing that sort of we maybe have a vague idea of what we think maybe might happen or what we think, but to actually sit down and ask ourselves those questions. And those three questions were, were really, really great. So do I even want children to begin with? And if I do want to have children, when do I think I want to have children? And if that is the case, then start to make that plan to move towards that goal. And like you said there, even coming off different contraceptive, either injections, pills, IUDs, there's all different, obviously, effects to the body that those things have. And so to even look at the timelines that you need for that as well. There's so many different things I feel here that you need to look into. I think this is really great and helpful for people to to know and just rejig their memory to, to look at and really focus on. Now, I think oftentimes too, we think about, when we think about fertility, we think about it just in the stage of if we're going to have children. But if we actually broaden the scope and talk about reproductive health in general, which is as women, we go through different stages of this journey. And I feel like we, it's just assumed that when we talk about fertility, it's when we're trying to conceive. But like you said, obviously, obviously sometimes there's things that we need to look at much earlier. So can you take us through the different stages of reproductive health that we as women should be looking at and just being aware of because it can also impact decisions for what we want to do in the future? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think the um, the thing that tends to happen is like, especially in the early parts of our lives, we're so focused on not having children. Yeah. Um, for some people that won't, that won't change, like that's a decision. Um, but for some people, it actually, like you, you do end up like flipping the switch and then going into like the rest of the journey. So like conceiving, pregnancy, postpartum. Um, but at, I guess like how we've broken it down in Kin or how I think about it at Kin is in a couple of parts. The first one is, yeah, like not wanting to have children. So um, kind of think about it as like contraception, but also just like general women's and general sexual um, sexual and reproductive health. Um, so that includes things like, um, you know, looking after your contraception, um, looking after your um, sexual health. So things like UTIs, STIs, things like that. Um, and then the next part, which is probably the uh, next stage, which is probably the most like forgotten part of the journey is like what I call just the fertility part of the journey. Um, and I define this by like um, with, I guess, like you are thinking about your fertility or thinking about family planning, but you're not quite ready yet. Um, and so this is the part that people forget because like there's not a ton that you can action here. 
Um, mm. Kind of like thinking about it, but like the things that you should plan for are things like um, actually thinking about what we just discussed, like yeah. the family plan, um, thinking about maybe like lifestyle factors that impact your fertility and like how you can start to plan for that so that you're not um, leaving yourself with less options. Um, things like egg freezing, things like maybe taking a fertility hormone test, if that's some like information that might help you as well. Um, even just talking to your doctor about this like plan, um, all these things like come into it so that you're proactively thinking about your fertility before you're even ready. Um, and then the rest of the plan, um, rest of the stages, I guess, is like what people tend to know more about. So things like conceiving, um, pregnancy, postpartum. Um, the thing I will say is like the journey isn't linear. Um, mm. I, I guess the stages are typically presented as linear. Like you kind of go con contraception, fertility, conceiving, pregnancy, postpartum. But like people can flow in between those um, the, those stages very often. Um, and so just like knowing that it doesn't have to be a linear journey and kind of like knowing which stage you are at um, is, is really important. Mm, and just being educated about the resources that are out there, like you were saying, it's good to know that there's something like Kin where you can actually access things that cross all those different stages and to also just be informed and be empowered to make choices that I suppose instead of feeling like you had and your friends had felt at the start of your journey where you just didn't feel like you could actually do anything about it because you didn't have the information. So another thing that I feel that probably happens as well is a lot of misconceptions around fertility and I think you've you sort of spoken a lot about this. So I'm interested to know what are the things that you've found that most women maybe think or believe about their journey or maybe even a specific part of their their journey that are misconceptions, the ones that you've sort of noticed have been floating around and most common? Yeah, for sure. Like I think the main, uh, I've got two. I think the first one is that um, period pain and excruciating period pain in particular is just normal. Um, mm. Like I think I, I know I grew up with like that view, whether it was from my my friends, um, the doctor, um, and even my mom, because my mom had excruciating period pain. So that was what she knew as normal. Um, and because especially in her generation, like no one talked about their period together. Um, yeah. she was like, okay, this is, this is just, this is just what it is. What it is. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so growing up, um, and I think a lot of people experience this, like period pain can be normal for people, like period cramps can be normal. But if you are feeling excruciating period pain, if you are on like literally cramped over, frying, having headaches, like I, I couldn't, I could barely move sometimes. I like had to skip school. Um, sometimes that doesn't, like that is an indicator of like something not necessarily being right. And I think often people know their bodies really, really well and like they can sense that. But um, going to doctors or talking to friends, sometimes they can be dismissed. And I think the, the thing I want to, I guess, like myth bustle, like the misconception here is that um, like sometimes this can be a sign of something else. Like endometriosis, for example, um, one of the biggest symptoms is excruciating period pain and one in 10 women have it. Um, and that's not to say like you definitely have it, but like keep talking to doctors or specialists until they can help you find out what it is or like what it could be um, because it's not necessarily something that you like should or have to live with. Yeah. Um, that's the first one. Uh, the second is um, probably around conceiving. Um, and I think because a lot of the like fertility burden is typically but, like borne by the woman, 
um, because like, yeah, where the, where the people carrying the child, um, et cetera, et cetera. I think a lot of people forget that like the male part of the equation like still matters and still contributes. And this yeah. uh, in particular is like forgotten in the conceiving, um, conceiving part of the journey. Um, and the um, fact of the matter is like, if you look at the studies, over 40% of like infertility is like caused by male only factors. And so just making sure that. Really? Yeah. That's really surprising. Over 40%. That's huge. Yeah. Um, and so just like making sure that you're aware of that and making sure that it's not just you optimizing your fertility and your lifestyle, but like considering what the other side of the equation can do and making sure you're doing the tests and th- things like that, that like when you are on the journey, so you're optimizing that as much as you can. Yeah. Oh, I really like that. That's super fascinating. And I feel like you're so right. We don't, when we think about conceiving, we so don't think about the guy part of it or the male part of it, because obviously that, you know, you need a guy to help you do that. <laughs> but I, I do feel, yeah, you're right. So as women, we, we tend to think about those things. Okay. So we're going to start to plan these things out, but what can our partner do to optimize that process as well. I really like that. They're really great ones. And you're right too about the period pain. I think we've we've grown up in a society and culture which almost as well, if it's not come down from generations where it's been a lived experience thing, sometimes it's also culturally quite acceptable PMS to have, obviously to have PMS symptoms, but to have that kind of pain just to make sure, take that as a signal to just go get it checked out anyways, even if it turns out to be nothing, at least you, you know, have checked it out, you know, which is yeah. really good. They're, they're really great misconceptions. I'm really, really surprised by that stat <laughs> too, 40%. That's huge. So what, what has been the most surprising or some of the most surprising things that you've learnt along your journey that you think we as women should know in relation to women's health and or fertility or reproductive health. That was one for me, the 40%. But are there any other surprising things that you have learned along this journey that we should know? So I'm uh, like, there's a lot, there's a lot. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But the one, and I'm almost like scared to admit this, but um, I learned uh, as part of building kin that like, you can't just get pregnant every single day of any week. Um, And that was a new one for me. And I probably learned this when I was 24. Um, and like the, I guess like what was happening in my mind was like, I was taking the pill every day. Um, and so the logic kind of like leads itself to suggest that you are, you know, like ovulating every day, you're stopping yourself (laughs) from ovulating every day because you can get pregnant any day of the week. Um, that's not true. You only, (laughs) um, you have this thing called a fertile window. Um, and it is a five to seven day period. It's different for every woman. Um, that you are likely to get pregnant or more likely to get pregnant in. Um, every other day of the week, uh, you are fine. <laughs> um, <laughs> and yeah, that, that was definitely a new one for me. But it's like, it's simple things like that, like small things that you, like we don't talk about, um, I, I don't know about you, but like I didn't learn that in sex ed. Um, <laughs> it's just like things like that, that you kind of like live your life um, with the, uh, I guess, like thought of. Um, yeah, that, that, that I just learned very recently. I think in high school when we learn these things in sex ed, 
we don't really, I mean, they probably taught it to us, but I don't recall them telling us that we only had a short window of time to actually get pregnant. No, it's more just don't get pregnant, make sure you use protection (laughs) and you can pretty much get pregnant like at a drop of a hat. So just, you know, and that was kind of the message I feel like that we all got in schools because probably they were trying to, you know, really prevent pregnancy. And like, I definitely understand how it would have happened. I went to a co-ed Catholic school um, and so that was 100% the message. And um, the uh, the main recollection I have of my sex ed was like condoms on bananas and like no one actually making it onto the banana and everyone just blowing up the condoms as balloons. Like, that was- <laughs> <laughs> And that's all I can remember. Yeah. Or filling them up with water and making yeah. it making like water. Yeah, I remember that too. <laughs> yeah. So it is interesting because obviously when we're teenagers and we learn these things, we don't, you're right, we don't really think about it. And when you take something like the pill, contraceptive pill, you are just thinking, well, I'm taking a pill every day and this will just stop me from getting pregnant. And I suppose, again, it's not until you start to think about actually becoming pregnant that you start to actually think, okay, how do I, now how do I actually get pregnant? And it's probably not as, not as simple or easy as perhaps what we were taught when we were in school. What are the other things that we've, we didn't learn in school, you know? Yeah. And and I think that's the other thing. It's like, we were told that it was so easy to get pregnant and therefore like to avoid it at all costs. So the perception was that it was easy. But the reality is that like one in six couples do struggle to um, conceive um, in the first like 12 months of trying. Um, And I think the like not knowing that or like not uh, being aware of that means that as you're on your fertility journey and as you are trying to conceive, um, not being successful or not having that like positive pregnancy straight away can make you feel like something is wrong with you or can make you feel like very alone in the journey because you don't know that this like might be very, very common for like other people as well and not like find another community, like a community that can support you in this. Um, so I think it is really important to talk about. I think, yeah, this is this is the stuff that I'd love to have more involved in, um, in like sex ed in school or like later in your life as well. Um, but just having that information like more accessible is really important. Yeah, just to, it's almost like we need to re-educate ourselves. It's almost like you need to start a a sex ed course for adults after your teenage years that you can actually, because I feel like that's primarily what they want to do is in high school, stop you from getting pregnant. But the reality is, yes, it's it's probably not that easy to, to, to do. And like you said, a lot of couples struggle, but also even just that whole expectation of being able to get pregnant really easily and if you don't get pregnant within the first 12 months what what effects that has on on the couple on the woman and you know I think was also miscarriages are very uh, common as well which is another thing that we actually don't really speak about publicly and that can bring a lot of stuff up as well for people what has been well what have you found to be the most challenging? around the stigma attached to talking about fertility and reproductive issues and things like that. Because I feel that, like I said, I definitely don't feel like there's there's a lot of conversation around, especially fertility issues, I feel. Yeah, 100%. And I think like that's like that in and of itself is like the whole problem. Um, Mm. And the way I see this in the way, like, I guess, like, the thing that's so frustrating to me is that the stigma, like, causes a lot of the sort of, like, uh, flow on impacts that, like, people start to feel day to day. Um, So, like, when you have stigma, 
around reproductive health, around fertility, around miscarriages, what happens is people don't talk about it. Um, when people don't talk about it and they have their own like experiences um, almost like in an isolated way, there's lack of awareness that it is like more common than it seems to be. Yeah. Um, and when it, when I guess like people don't have that awareness, what tends to happen in um, society is that we don't view it as a huge issue. And when people don't view something as an issue, there's no incentive or no uh, even just like awareness to go solve that problem. And so what you see in particular in like women's health and reproductive health is that there is a lack of education, um, but just like a lack of research into women's health, which means a lack of investment, which means a lack of good solutions or good treatments for women's health. I think like that's probably been the most uh, challenging thing in working in this industry is like you can see problems, um, Mm. but not enough solutions and not enough people working on like all the things that we could be doing better in women's health and women's reproductive health. Um, And so, yeah, yeah, I think like the more we can normalise these conversations, the more we can bring awareness around the types of issues that people do face, the more we can work towards like more research, better products, better education, better solutions. Um, and that would be like the ultimate goal for kin or like for for honestly this entire this entire market. Yeah, and I feel like you said it. We do need to normalize the conversations because then it would help people feel like, firstly, that they're not alone and they've got a, a point of connection with other people, and and also that it's not a point of shame or experiencing those feelings and having someone to connect or having people to connect with, but then also going, okay, this is something that a lot of people experience and I can feel in an empowered state to then go and get these solutions or or at least explore these solutions to help me with this particular issue. Yeah. 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 Now, you know, working in this space, this is, you obviously speak to a variety of people, experts and, and people in the reproductive health, particularly obviously with women. And I'm really interested to know what the most valuable lessons you have learnt from your work in this space, from working with all of these experts and health professionals that you now apply to your own life? Yeah, I, I think the main one is that I, I think like I've just seen so many um, versions of like fertility journeys. So many, I've talked to like a lot of specialists. And I think the main thing that I've come across is that healthcare should and like can be on your terms. Um, and I think this is one of the biggest values that we have in Kin and we want to empower people to like take control of their fertility journey or their healthcare. Um, but when I say that, I guess like what it looks like is firstly having the education and the knowledge to actually like make decisions about your own body and your own health. Um, and so knowing that like knowledge is healthcare and like having that education gives you the right language, the right tools to ask the right questions, to understand your options to really like advocate for yourself um, and your body and what you need when it comes to healthcare. Um, But the second part of this is actually like, it's nice to say healthcare is on your terms, but ultimately like you aren't a specialist and you, um, you haven't, you know, got the qualifications to make all the calls. And so partnering with like an empathetic and qualified practitioner, they can actually support you in your decisions. But what this looks like isn't just, you know, this is the facts, this is the science, therefore this should be your decision. It's actually knowing that it's not just about the science, but it's also about the personal side. And the personal side involves your values, like understanding your journey, understanding your goals, and having a practitioner that understands both like 
that and the science um, is going to be incredibly important in making sure the decisions that you make about your body are the right ones for you. And so what you need is a practi- like information and then a practitioner that can give you an overview of your options and weigh that up against not just what is right, but also what you value and then empower you to make the best decision for your body. And so that's like a huge thing that I look for for myself. Um, but it's a huge thing that I advocate other people look for for them, their health as well, especially like big health decisions. Yeah, I like that. The combination of education and knowledge and also finding the right health practitioner or professional to work with you along that journey. And I liked how you said that there's obviously not just the science and obviously they've got the qualifications, but also the personal side to really understand you and what your values are and what you need along that journey because it's different for everybody. How do we actually find the right person? Because this is another thing. I definitely have you know, you, you get to see a lot of, and, and it might not just be a fertility specialist. It could be just a gyno or, you know, OBGYN and you have pictures on a website that you can see, but how do you actually know that that person is going to, I mean, how do we go and see 10 people and then pick somebody? What is your suggestion for choosing the right health professional? Yeah. I, I don't know that I have all the answers on this one. Like it's an <laughs> ongoing problem. Like I'm really keen to solve. Um, I think for me, recommendations honestly do go a really far away like I think um like your girlfriends or like people your family your friends like people who have um seen these people and like have felt heard and have felt that they like have a deep knowledge in a space that is relevant to you I think that says like that speaks volumes um and then I think yeah I think the other part is um not necessarily to go out and like test 10 specialists because that's not always accessible um to a lot of people but no, I think the the call out is like if you see a specialist that some and something doesn't feel right, like um, whether they've not they're not listening, you don't feel heard, you don't feel like they're listening to you, you feel dismissed in some way, um, you don't feel like they um, understand your specific situation or have like experience about your specific situation. It's okay to look for a second opinion, and it's okay to like advocate for yourself and find someone that else that might. Um, rather than like, yeah, holding on to the the same one for whatever reason. Yeah, I like those suggestions too. And I think we all know what doesn't feel quite right. So that's a really great one to take into. I mean, you don't have to, like you said, see 10 people, but just know if something doesn't feel quite right, then maybe get a second opinion or, or see somebody else. Yeah, I like that one. Now, in terms of the business aspect of Kin, you really have interrupted a space and become a bit of a trailblazer in this industry. That you pretty much had no experience in prior to coming into it because it's health and tech, right? And you came from a corporate background. So I'm so interested in this and I'm, I'm keen to know, firstly, how do you feel you did this? And then for people listening, because I know a lot of women are really interested in helping people and also starting something of their own. So let's start firstly by how, take me through that sort of journey of interrupting the space with what you've done with Kin, but then we'll, we'll get into sort of your suggestions about how people can actually start their own thing. Yeah. So I, when I started, I was 24. I, as you mentioned, came from a corporate background um, didn't know anything about healthcare and I did not, like I studied commerce. Um, so I don't have a medical background at all. Uh, so I think starting Kin, I was really, really anxious, really. Um, you had a lot of that like sort of imposter syndrome. Um, but I think what I quickly realized was that I'm actually not necessarily the perfect person to start it, but, um, I'm the perfect person to work on it. Um, and 
I don't know if I can explain the difference well, but essentially I realized that I was the perfect patient. I'm a completely average patient who knows not a lot, um, but, and doesn't, I don't expect like the world, but I, I have expectations about like what my healthcare should be. Um, mm. And so that's how I got started. And I realized that I didn't need to know everything about fertility because I'm never, I'm, I wasn't going to go become a specialist. I wasn't going to go become a doctor, but there are plenty of really great experts I can partner with and work with that will help me along this journey and will guide me. Um, and my advantage was actually that I didn't come from that world. I didn't come from the world where I knew what was uh, what was already in place and therefore I could dream about like the patient journey that I wanted for myself. Um, yes. I think I, I realized from there that like I didn't have to be this perfect person with all the qualifications and all the experience in order to start kin. Um, I just had to ask enough questions and expect enough answers um, yeah. in order to sort of like push forward and then make sure I was like, surrounding myself with the right people at every single point in time. Mm. It's almost, you talked about the the patient journey and so positioning yourself basically as the client, it means that you know what you want or what other, and, and what other women need and want as well, because obviously talking to your girlfriends, they've experienced similar things. Amazing. I really, really like that. And so for women who are listening, who are really interested in helping other people and, or they might've experienced something themselves where they just haven't found a good enough solution, what would be your best suggestions for them to start something of their own? I think the first one always has to be um, care enough about the problem. Um, mm. And I say this because like, I think a lot of people start something um, for a problem that like not necessarily consumes them or like um, they really care about. And I think a lot of building a um, business comes down to like a lot of persistent um, getting to like caring enough to get to a really deep insight about the problem and therefore like being able to solve it, but also like the creative energy and the creative like persistence to keep coming up with potential solutions and then going out and like testing different solutions. Um, so I definitely think that's like table stakes must have. Mm-hmm. Um, my second thing would be uh, this actually, this was advice that came to me from uh, the founder of Spreaky, Alex, um, and it is solve an emotional problem and then a functional problem, and then a business problem. Um, but you've got to have all three. Um, and so I think what mm-hmm. typically happens is like, there are a lot of problems in this world, but not yes. all of them make for a really great business. But if you can solve all three, like there is an emotional problem behind it, and so people will care enough about it. There is a functional problem, i.e. the solution right now is not good enough um, for yes. whatever reason. And you can solve a business problem. So like there is um, enough like margin in there for you to like, um, actually create a business off, um, then you've got a potential business on your hands and you should go after it. Um, but without all those three things, you've just got a problem or you've just got a solution, but you don't have a business. And the third one is probably like a very overused one, but I actually think it is really important. And that's probably why it's overused. Test. Because uh, I think when you start something, you and I, I was definitely guilty of this, you have this like grand vision of what success looks like. Um, and that grand vision does not happen overnight. <laughs> it is still a very ongoing journey. Um, mm-hmm. And you, because you have this vision, you can see how beautiful it is and how like excited, like, you're, you're just excited about it. You want to get there ASAP um, and you want to build all of it. Um, but the reality is like you're going to learn so much as you're on this journey um, that that solution or that end state might not be actually the best state that you um, mm. that that, that solves your problem. 
So make sure that you like break everything down to what are the key assumptions that underpin your vision and underpin your problem or your solution. And then find ways to test it in the smallest way possible because your job in the early days is to build this like flywheel that gives you to like gets you to the next step to the next step to the next step and then gets you to your end vision. Um, but that journey is like, again, not, not linear. Um, yeah. You'll learn things, you'll iterate on things, you'll surprise yourself. Um, but your, I guess like your vision or your mission should be like your North Star, but uh, it takes smaller compounding steps together. Yeah. Oh, I love all of those suggestions. They were so good. So firstly, care enough about the problem. It should really consume you. And I, I do feel like a lot of entrepreneurs and I mean, entrepreneurs in general, we have a lot of ideas and, you know, you can you can start actioning all of them really, but there has to be that piece where you, it's all consuming and you really, really care about it. I really like that. The second one was to make sure that your solution solves an emotional, functional and business problem. And I think that's so interesting because we do often hear that businesses are created to solve problems, but to make sure that it hits those three pillars, that's very, very helpful, I think, as, as well to get even more specific about what it is that you're creating and then testing. I really like that. And of course, along the way, you learn a lot of different things and you can incorporate that into what your final solution may ultimately become. But all of all of that information is really important and, and helpful. I really like that. What's been the most valuable lesson you've learned about business through this journey? My most valuable lesson probably stems from the um, testing point. Mm. Uh, and I, kind of, I like to describe it as like how you do one thing is how you do everything. Um, and what I mean by this is that um, especially like when it comes to growth or um, yeah, like building a business for growth, um, I think people like to believe that there's this like one silver bullet that like helps you rocket ship your business. Um, that might be true for some businesses um, and like that's great. But I think for most businesses, what it is is very small iterations that compound over time that lead to like steady and good growth. Um, mm. And I think I think the learning I have is like to not discount that and actually I've become like very addicted to those like small dopamine hits that like you kind of like see a problem you see friction and then you can like creatively solve way like uh, figure out ways to solve it and then you can see that move in your growth metrics or like the metrics that you look at mm. um and so I think like making sure that you have the discipline and the like uh good execution even on the small things as much as you do on the big things will lead to like longer term um success because like it's those small compounded movements that will really like see you steadily increase your business. Yeah, I like that too. The small iterations over time for the steady growth and just to make sure that you don't neglect those, I suppose, instead of just focusing on the big things. Yeah, what a fab lesson. Now, one of the things I speak to all my guests about is rejection and failure because we all experience these in life. So I'm interested to know what has been your biggest rejection or failure and what have you learned from it? Yeah, I um the biggest one, um, and it's probably happened a few multiple times in different shapes and sizes, is probably just like building a solution, but that doesn't solve a problem. Um, and I've been guilty of doing this a lot, but the main one, uh, the biggest one we probably did at Kin was we built a content masterclass um about fertility. Um, and it was a paid masterclass and we launched it. Um, and it didn't get much traction. And what we learned from that was like there's just like not a lot of product market fit. Um, and that it wasn't the way people actually wanted to learn about their fertility. 
Mm. Um, but the way this happened was I had this, like, I had been inspired by Masterclass, like the app. Um, and oh, yes. This, like, big grand vision of, like, something that was similar, but, like, for reproductive health. I wanted this, like, beautiful library of classes about reproductive health. But I started from that. And then I started being like, okay, what problems does this solve? Um, I think <laughs> yes. when you approach a problem like that, or not even approach a problem, when you approach a, like when you approach something like that, you're inherently biased because you will have a confirmation bias because your solution is so top of mind. And so I went about like pitching myself probably, like as in trying to convince myself, like all these customers have this problem and therefore like this is the best solution for it. Um, but I already had the solution in mind. So um, yes. I, think it's, I think the main lesson I've taken out from this and like um, it's tripped me up a few times before um, is to focus like 80% of your time on defining a problem and so like and understanding the problem really, really deeply before you even think about solutions. Because mm-hmm. most of the time, if you understand the problem really well, the solution actually comes quite naturally and logically. But if you start with a solution and find a problem, um, you are likely not to have product market fit. Um, and my product team has like, yeah, hammered this into me again and again. And so just like lo- not lose the excitement and the spark and the inspiration because like that's really what drives like a business as well, like that passion. Um, but just make sure you start with the problem rather than starting with the solution. Yeah. Oh, I like that so much. And even just the breakdown of the 80-20 and focusing on the problem, really understanding that in depthly, because it totally makes sense there where you were saying that if you already start with the solution, you are going to be biased because you want to make the you want to make the solution because you've already got it in your head. And creatively, I think sometimes too that you just kind of want to do that for yourself creatively. This would be so great. But like you said, it might not necessarily make a good fit for the market. So I really like that one. Now, the last question that I have for you is if you had an overarching life philosophy or mantra that you tried to live your life by, what would that be? So I, this is a bit of a cheat answer, but I don't have a life, life mantra. I tend to, I think the way I operate is like, I tend to cycle through themes of mantras, I guess, depending mm. on like what I'm trying to work towards. Um, and just like side note, I kind of like um, the way I work is like I put these themes of mantras or like that I'm thinking about as the name of my alarm clock. And so that way, when I'm like half awake, subconscious and like I wake up, it's the first thing I see and feel. Um, oh, I like that. <laughs> That's great. The one on my alarm clock right now is uh, you are enough. Um, and the way this came about is that I think um, and so anxiety is like broadly something I'm working on um, with my therapist, and my, uh, my psychologist. And I think um, I started noticing that when I operate from a place of like insecurity or not being enough, I was solving for all the wrong things. I was solving for like what people, um, what I thought people would want. Um, I was solving for like, yeah, what I, uh, how people might view me if I do certain things. Um, And because you are your worst, own worst enemy, you tend to like overstate or over catastrophize that line of thinking. Um, And so I think the state of mind I wanted to change was like actually starting to believe in myself and believe that I was enough. But it's not as easy as saying, hey, believe in yourself, wake up and like, you know, like you'll have yeah. um, it's so yeah. deeply ingrained. And so um, the mantra um, to answer your question that I've actually really come to love is one from uh, Laura Henshaw from Keep It Cleaner. Um, and she says, I'm doing the best with what I've got. Um, and I find that it's so powerful because I can actually apply a very much like true or false check on this. And if the mm. answer is true and like I'm giving it all I've got, and I'm doing the best um, that I can, 
then like I am enough. Um, and that gives me, I guess, like more confidence and it allows me to like focus on things that actually matter. Um, it allows me to focus on the journey rather than result. It allows me to like hold myself more confidently and like positively. And I find that I'm just like more happy or like more content and present. Um, and so that's the vibe I'm like going with at the moment. Yeah, I so love that. And just even firstly, the alarm thing is amazing. So that's a, a little tip for all of us listening is to pop a little mantra on your alarm when you wake up so that it does subconsciously sink in as well. But I feel like with the you are enough, I think that's something that everybody to some degree struggles with just this feeling of being enough and standing in our own power of who we are. And I do really like that statement by by Laura, I'm doing the best I can with what I've got, which really does bring it down to your own personal circumstances, I suppose, and who you are, where you're at, and you can definitely know whether that's a true statement for you or not. So I really, really love that. That's so amazing. Yeah. And even like with that, like even um, on a day-to-day basis, like with the energy that you've got or with like the um, capacity or emotional capacity that you've got, like just like knowing to check in with yourself as well is like really important. Yeah. So it incorporates a bit of compassion and understanding for yourself for wherever you're at rather than holding yourself to a ridiculously unachievable expectation, which I feel like, again, even though we're dealing with this, you are enough. We also have really high expectations of ourselves, I think, in this in this world day and age. So yeah, I really, really love that. Now, tell us what kind of resources that kin provide and what people will receive by getting involved with Kin because I think that there's just so much on there and for those listening who have never heard of Kin Fertility before this will give them a little bit of an insight into what they can expect. Yeah so with Kin we essentially offer all um, fertility essentials everything from contraception, fertility, conceiving, pregnancy, postpartum so that all those stages that we talked about um, with contraception, we offer a online doctor service where you can talk to a doctor online and get the contraceptive pill delivered to your door. Um, on the fertility side, we actually offer a fertility hormone test. It's that exact test that I did. Um, wow. Uh, we make sure that our doctors like know how to um, look at the results and can like deliver um, the results in a really compassionate way. Um, and then throughout the conceiving pregnancy and postpartum journey, we've got a ton of resources like checklists um, that are personalized to you. Uh, education, like blog posts and things like that, as well as all your fertility essentials. So things like prenatal supplements all the way to your postpartum recovery kits. Um, So really trying to like be that guide for you across your whole reproductive health journey. Yeah, I I so love that. And it's it's all in one place. So you can really just go there and and depending on where you are in your journey, sort of find your way through and, and get the support that you need. I really love that. Where else can people find all the amazing work that you guys are doing over at Kin? Your Instagram and your website, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so our website is kinfertility.com.au and our Instagram is kin.fertility. Amazing. So what we're going to do, guys, is pop all of that info in the show notes for you so you can check out all of the amazing things and also just help get more information for yourself, educate yourself, but also connect yourself with a health professional depending on what stage you are at in your journey. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Nicole. I feel like this has been such a great chat and so informative. I feel like so many women who are listening will have really gotten a lot out of this chat. So thank you so much for sharing your journey and your insights as well. Thanks for having me. Now, guys, thank you for listening. Tell us what you loved and learned from this episode by leaving a rating and review over at Apple Podcasts. Make sure you screenshot this and tag us, share it to your socials. Thank you again so much for joining me, Nicole. And thank you, guys 
guys for listening. We'll catch you next time on the Rage Active Podcast.